good to see you all here this morning. Ooh, that's some good worship. It's been one of those weeks in the life of our family, in the life of our community, where there were lots of uh, hospitalizations and new diagnoses and um, some procedures, back surgeries, just um, a lot going on in many of our lives. And I'm so grateful that we have a space where we can gather, where we can worship, where we can share that, where we can speak the name of Jesus over all of that and over all that we experience in this life. Because that's who we come to worship. That's why we are here. That's the spirit in which we gather. And I'm just so grateful uh, to be a part of this church community with each and every one of you. So whether you're worshiping online, hello, good morning, welcome. So glad you're here or here with us in person. We know that the spirit binds us together uh, as we continue in our own spirit of worship this morning. Yeah. All right, so this morning we are nearing the end, as it were, of our teaching series called Tossing and Turning. where We've been looking at different stories in scripture of people who have found themselves in a moment of wilderness, either a physical wilderness or sort of a metaphorical wilderness, unknown, those times of transition, uncertainty, change, fear, all those things that keep us up at night tossing and turning. Or as I heard somebody say, maybe it was their angry starfish spouse that was snoring that kept them up tossing and turning. I was like, that's, you know, snoring like limbs on every side. Anyways, you get it, Brandon, right? I'm not going to name names, but, you know, it's like things that keep us up, snoring spouses. That is one of them as well. But we've turned to each of these places in Scripture to remind ourselves again of how God showed up in their life. And what I hope has been moments of encouragement for us each week as we look again at these stories and our own moment of wilderness journeying, where one known reality of a previous location has changed and that the next new, new place has yet to be revealed. In this in-between, in this journeying together, in this wilderness unknown, my hope has been that each time we turn to one of these stories in Scripture, many of that, them we've heard before, but we tell these stories over and over to remind ourselves of these truths of how God shows up in places and times of wilderness with the faith and the hope and the belief that God will show up again and do it again and move for us in this moment as well. We've seen how God calls, how God makes a way where there wasn't a way. We see how God heals. We see how God provides through each of these different stories. And so today we're going to turn um, to one that you've probably heard before, but as someone said this morning, I haven't read that one in a while. I should go back. Well, here we go. We're going to go back. And we're going to look again at the story of Ruth and Naomi. It's in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters long. Have you guys read it before? Maybe. Remember Ruth? It's only four chapters long. It comes right after the book of Judges. And actually, the book of Ruth begins with the words, in the days when the judges ruled. So this story takes place during the time of the judges. This was before Israel had a king. And the book of Judges, you know, it's, it sort of, you know, narrates a lot of that period of time when the judges did rule. It refers to, uh, let's see, it, it's 
the judges served as sort of military political leaders. They were raised up by God to save Israel from their enemies. But just about every time, if you remember, every new judge, after every time, they would fall back again in sort of mayhem and chaos and just unfaithfulness. And the book of Judges actually ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's not a good thing. Okay, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. That meant that they were not living according to the law that God had given them. This law that was supposed to provide life for them, to promote life, life with God, life with this community, this set-apartness to be holy. Israel, in the book of Judges, fails to sort of live according to this law, and they continue to fall into chaos. And so right after we get all of these several series of judges where the people are doing what is right in their own eyes, it's followed up by a story of a woman named Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it's remarkably different. Even though it happens in the same time of the judges, instead of sort of unfaithfulness and chaos and doing what's right in your own eyes, you have a story of Ruth. It's the story about belonging and blessing and faithfulness. It's just a stark contrast. It's all about this faithful love of God that we see reflected out in Ruth and the people sort of around her. The Hebrew word we say for this is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. I meant to put that up there, but it's this, this kind of idea of God's covenant love, this faithfulness that's a recurring theme all the way throughout the story of Ruth. So I want you to sort of hear that and then see that theme as we're going to see it play out. Stark contrast to the, to the chaos of Judges. So I'm going to read to you uh, just the first few verses of Ruth chapter 1. You can follow along on your screen. If you have your Bible with you, you're welcome to follow along on your phone, whatever. You want to tweet that? I don't know. What do you, people, don't, people don't really do that anymore, do they? No, they don't. That's right. I really don't represent our generation very well. That's all right. That's all right. I mean, like, you can be on your phone and read scripture, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Let's, let's turn again. Go back to the story of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. If it'll let me. Here we go. There it is. Yeah, it said connection lost. That probably means... A lot of things. <laughs> I couldn't sleep at all nope. Do you all hear that too, right? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> hear what? Yeah, you should. You don't even know how much you could actually mess with me. Some of you do. All right. Brenda, I'm just going to let you drive it for me today. It's only scripture. So there we can thank you. Okay. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites. I should have had you one of you all read this. How you feel about that? You 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 that would have been good. From Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. 
They lived there about 10 years, and both Milan and Chilion died, and so that the, women was, the, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Pause right there, okay? They were married, had two sons. The two sons took wives. But then she, let's, oh, can you go back, please? I'm sorry, thank you so much. But then they died, so the woman was left without her sons and her husband. This is Naomi. We find her in a place of loss, in a place of grief. We've called this wilderness in this series, the loss of her husband and now her two sons. Also, in a foreign land. She's not in her homeland. So we find Naomi in this place of wilderness. So the story continues. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for, you to, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now, if you've heard the story of Ruth at all, that's, that line is probably the most famous. There at the end of chapter 1, where you go, I go, your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Now, why is that so significant? Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. She was not, even though she married a man who was in Israel, she was not expected after his death to follow the laws of Israel. That wouldn't have been expected. The, the expected thing to do would have been for her to return home like her sister-in-law did. So like, there's no shame here for Orpah and what she did. This is what Ruth asked her. This is what was expected. Ruth is saying, or Naomi is saying, look, I, don't have, I can't have any more kids for you to marry. You shouldn't stay here. You should go home. But Ruth chooses to stay. She chooses to join Naomi in her own season of wilderness, in her own uncertainty and, and change and fear. She joins Naomi and she says, no, I'm, I'm staying and I'm going back to Israel with you. I'm going back. She chooses to enter sort of this, this your God will be my God. That is the God of Israel, this, this covenant God, to demonstrate this faithfulness, this 
loving kindness, this covenant love, this has said out of love for her own mother-in-law. She says, do not press me to leave you or turn back. Where you go, I will go. So the story continues in chapter 2. When they get back, Ruth goes out. Now again, these are, these are two widows in a time where they would have had no protection. I mean, traveling, this was a very risky, dangerous thing to do. And so when they return home, they have nothing. They have no household. They have no, no, no one to provide for them. And so Ruth goes out to the fields to glean. And that is the amount of, of you know, grain, grain or produce or whatever that might have been left over after the harvest. It's what people in poverty do. And so she goes out to the fields to glean barley and to sustain herself in Naomi. And the scripture says in chapter 2, I have a next slide, as it happened, she came to, maybe not. No, no, not yet. Sorry, not yet. Um, as it happened, she came to a part of the field belonging to Boaz. And Boaz was a pillar in the community, also who happened to be a distant relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And so when Boaz learns of Ruth and her story and her loyalty to Naomi, this, this faithfulness, this kindness, he blesses her. Here's the slide. He blesses her. He's in awe of her. And he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of her husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So he blesses her, and he offers her sort of this protection and abundant food. He even instructs uh, some that they had held back, he instructs his servants to pull out some grain that they had already harvested so that Ruth had more to glean. And so Ruth comes back to Naomi just with arms full. What scripture says is probably close to 30 pounds of grain for her and Naomi, so much more than what she expected when she sent Ruth out to glean. And when she sees this abundant and astounding harvest and learns who Ruth has met, Naomi expresses hope for the very first time in our story. She says to her daughter-in-law, blessed, blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. And remember in chapter 1, when Naomi is trying to get her daughter-in-laws to go home, she, said, she feels as if God has like, turned on her, right? She feels abandoned and forsaken. And now this is the first time that she expresses hope. And she says, blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She realizes God's kindness has not forsaken me. And that word she uses there, that word for kindness in chapter two is that Hebrew word has said, meaning God's covenant love and God's faithfulness. And also, this man is a relative, one of our nearest kin. That's significant, because according to law in Israel, there's something that was called a kinsman redeemer, that if there was a distant relative, that they were by law required to care for sort of impoverished relatives. And this could mean lots of different things, but part of that could mean like redeeming land they sold out of debt or just providing for these relatives, especially in the death of a husband. So Naomi now for the first time sees a way forward. 
She sees how God is providing, has not forsaken her. And she instructs Ruth to do a few things. If you're familiar with the story, chapter 3 is where it gets a little bit interesting. <laughs> okay, we're going to read it. <laughs> it gets real. It's real. It gets real. All right, so, in, so she instructs Ruth to go and meet Boaz down at the threshing floor. And this is how it continues in Ruth uh, chapter 3. She says this, Naomi says this to Ruth, Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man, this is Boaz, by the way, until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. If my mother-in-law told me to do it, there's a lot of cultural, okay. I'd be like, now do what now? Start with take a bath and anoint yourself. Um, so you need to know that, you may already know this, um, um, the uncovering of feet is a euphemism for other things. I knew that, and I also knew that when you study Ruth, like, yeah, that's what that, but actually, scholars are debating about whether that's actually what happened here. Scholars do not agree. Shocking, right? I just thought that's like, that's the story. We all, we didn't learn that in kids' Sunday school class, but somewhere along the line, like, that's the story. Um, but no, it's kind of a matter of debate still, of like, it might just be like, no, he just uncovered, she just uncovered his feet. But the more important thing here is that Naomi gives her very, you know, strict instructions. You do these things, you wait for him to tell you what to do. That's not actually how the story goes. Ruth does go. She lies down next to him. But here's what happens. When Boaz wakes up in surprise to discover her lying beside him, it is Ruth that tells him what to do, not the other way around. And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. Spread your cloak over. That means Mary, okay? That means Mary. To spread one's cloak, stop it. To spread one's cloak over meant for a woman is to marry her. What she's asking is for Boaz to marry her. Ruth is proposing to Boaz. Now, that's pretty bold. That's pretty impressive. Lots of cultural differences and thousands of years separate us, but that's still sort of like a, a weird thing to do today, right? People do it. Power to you. But it's still kind of, in certain regions, you're like, oh. So we get it, right? This is, this is a very bold move. That is the most important thing that I think we need to take, is yes, she sees this opportunity, this just next of kin, right, of a way forward for this person to provide. But it's Ruth, in her, in her own words, who proposes to Boaz. And she, she calls him to fulfill his duty according to the law, to care for her and Naomi. And listen, Boaz agrees. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's own faithfulness, a Moabite woman who loves her mother-in-law, who takes the God of Israel and makes this her covenant as well. He is so impressed by her faithfulness that it almost inspires his own faithful response. Remember, in a time where people did whatever was right in their own eyes, in the time of judges where they were living in chaos, right, where they were not following the law, 
Here comes Ruth, who says, this is what is right. This is the way forward. And Boaz is inspired to be faithful in return, to fulfill the law, to provide for Ruth and Naomi through marriage. And in that, he blesses her. He pronounces this blessing. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, this last instance of your loyalty. I think I have that up there too. That loyalty, that's that word, has said again. Your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. So it's like, what? this is such a funny wedding proposal, right? It's like, okay, so we understand that maybe Boaz is a little bit older than Ruth. But what he's saying is he's so impressed by her faithfulness and to do the right thing, sort of in this, to our modern eyes, very interesting situation. And you know what happens next is that they get married, and Ruth has a son. She conceives and has a son. Where there was once famine in the story, there's now plentiful harvest. Where there was what once barrenness in her first marriage for 10 years to Naomi's son, there is now a birth. And one of my favorite moments happens at the very end of the story of Ruth. It's in chapter 4, where all of the women in the village gather around Naomi. And after they hear that Ruth is pregnant, they pronounce this blessing to Naomi. And they say this, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. How beautiful is that? And I love this idea of it's, it's the women who have gotten to know Naomi over this amount of time, who gather sort of at the end of what we know of as the story, and they celebrate with her, and they rejoice with her. Naomi's not the one who's having the baby. It's her daughter-in-law, who's now married to somebody else. But she's staying, commitment, she's staying committed through her love and devotion to Naomi. And they are pronouncing this blessing, celebrating with her of the good that has come. The book of Ruth then ends with the genealogy. Do you all remember who's Ruth, Ruth's son, who that is? That would have been a good trivia question. Whenever, are you, you're reading it. Oh, look, you have your, good job. You have your scripture on your phone. Yes. <laughs> Ruth's son is named Obed, and he will become the grandfather of King David. That's amazing, right? And we know who comes from King David. Yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Can't make me laugh, I'm going to cough. Allergies, we're working on it. I'm not sick, I promise. Um, yes, thank you. Ruth becomes part of the genealogy. That's amazing. Ruth reflects this same covenant and faithfulness and love of God as a foreigner, as a Moabite. She becomes a part of the lineage that leads to our Messiah. Something interesting about this story is that God never speaks in the book of Ruth. Did you catch that? Did you know that? It's like God is, um, is not even a character in it, and yet is. God is at work behind the scenes. Blessing, redeeming, providing, working new life where once there was only emptiness and grief and death. 
even though God doesn't speak throughout this story, there are moments of so much love and faithfulness and belonging that happen all the way throughout. That word has said comes up so much when we talk about the faithfulness and the loyalty and the love. It's this reoccurring theme that now people are embodying and reflecting that same love out into the world. And how did they do this? How did Ruth do this? How did Naomi and Boaz, how did they do this? Well, first, they had to know God. They also had to know the law. In order to follow the law, you've got to know the law. And for Israel, the law, that's also how they knew God and God's promise to them and God's covenant with them, the stories of their tradition and their people. In order to reflect God's loving kindness, they had to know God, which meant know the law. And then they had to choose to practice it in their community. Ruth had lots of options here. Maybe not lots. She had two. Stay or go. Go back home or stay with Naomi. And she chose to reflect God's loving kindness in her crossroads of life. Where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. You know, I think about all of the people then that reflected God's loving kindness. I think about what it means to be church, what we're doing here, is that not what we are called to do as well? To reflect God's loving kindness and belonging out into the world. We say we want to look like Jesus. We say that we're on a mission to follow Jesus, to share his love and his light. That's how we embody God's new covenant, God's loving kindness with us, the gift of his son, our savior, and then we choose to share it. I mean, there's an active choice here. When the opportunity arises, we choose to reflect that love and that belonging and that light in the communities that we have chosen, in the world where we live, in this time and place. I think if we want to look and, and maybe be a little bit like Ruth in the crossroads of our own lives, we need to know God. We need to know the law who now we say, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbors as yourselves. we got to know that. For us, the word is one revelation to us of who God is and what God has done. we got to know the word. So that when the time comes at the crossroads of our lives and we have the opportunity, we can reflect that love to the world. When I think about what it means then for us to be a, a, a part of a church family that's choosing to follow the way of Christ together, choosing to be rooted in this particular community. This is our choice, right? And, and for some of the relationships, the family that we have, it's like, listen, where you go, I go. You go into the hospital, I'll meet you there. We're going to sit there because this is scary. You have a, um, we have a prayer need, I'll, I'll meet you there. You have a surgery coming up? I tried to go, but they were like, it's outpatient, Rachel. <laughs> it's okay. You got a surgery coming up? I'll, where you go, I go. We're in this together, learning to follow the way of Jesus and reflect God's love and belonging and freedom to the world. But there's an element in which we got to be prepared for when those moments come. And friends, I think the 
sort of the mechanism is the wrong word. I don't like that word, but the mode in which we have, I think the best mode that we have as a church that helps us prepare and grow and then reflect that love is our small group ministry. Yes, we have Bible studies occasionally. Yes, we have some book studies. Yes, there are other ways for us to plug in and grow. But the most consistent thing that we have in the life of our church is our small group ministry. Some of them took a break over the summer, so I'm talking about beyond, kind of in this last year. But these are what we call our renovation home groups or house groups. And we have groups that meet all over the city, we say, right? And all over. This is where we meet weekly to study the word, to pray together, to share our joys and concerns, to practice loving kindness so that we can be ready to share that with the world. These groups are where we go deep, where we share those burdens and those joys. We say this as a part of our vision. God created us, well, kind of not our vision, but sort of our our design of our house groups. This is what we say. God created us for community. We heal in community. We grow in community. We laugh. We cry. We encourage. We comfort. We enjoy. We find our voice. We find meaning. And our gifts are multiplied in community. In short, we share life together and everything that comes with it. Our groups are more than just talking about Sunday's teaching or doing a Bible study. They're where we activate our faith, where we let God transform us inwardly and use us outwardly as his vessels in the world. We've also said this about our house groups, that they are, the true life, they are where the true life of the church takes place. They are our discipleship-making model, where we study where we grow deep, where we pray, so that we can know the words, so that we can know God, so that we can practice that loving kindness together and then go. We use them, we say, as a time to grow deeper with each other and with God. So here's the thing. When I got here four years ago, we had a lot of groups, and I would say about 80% of our folks that worshiped here on Sunday morning, well, 80, not even just 80% of those connected to our church community that were a part of Revolution Church were plugged into a house group. That's ridiculously high, amazingly high. That's really good. That's really healthy. But a lot has happened in four years. And we know that. We know those stories. And through COVID and through coming back from COVID, some groups have remained, some groups have not. A few new groups have started. But I would say the reality that we're facing right now is that most of our groups are not functioning the way that they were originally designed. To grow, to study, to dig deep, even growing to that place of accountability, to share our burdens and our concerns, to pray together at your house group time. And then eventually, the design was that you would grow, raise up new leaders, and that we would multiply, and that new groups would pop up and continue to start, right? And the reality is that those groups, they, they just aren't functioning the way that they were designed and the way that they can. And so that's what I'm inviting you all to consider this morning. The reality is that where four years ago, 80% of us were in one, the reality now is that most of us aren't. 
And this isn't like a shaming thing this morning. You know I'm not about that, and you know my heart. It is a let's get back to studying together. Because I've talked to many of you, and so many of you have shared that there is a, you, you're experiencing a, a spiritual desire to grow, like a hunger to grow deeper, to feel connected. And hear me too, small groups are not the only place to be connected because we're also not into just starting different social clubs, right? Where we just become little cliques and that's your only connection to Revolution Church. No, that's what, not what I'm saying this morning either. We want to be connected so that we can grow and study the word and know God together. And we also want to find a place to plug in and serve. There are all kinds of ways that you can serve as well. That's for another day. Some of us serve in our house groups, but most of the opportunities that we have to serve go far beyond just a house group. Any of us, people of all ages, can come to Grace Kids next Friday night. My kids went, and they got to play with the kids at Epworth Church and Grace Church. It was a great time. People of all ages can go and share in that fellowship and that community where we can get to know each other beyond. But we do need to be plugged in and connected somewhere where we are growing in the Word of God beyond just Sunday morning. This can't be the only place where we eat, friends. And so I want to invite you to a time where we're going to be sort of relaunching and refocusing our house groups. And I'm excited. I am so excited. If you are in a group that is still together and hasn't been maybe studying or meeting as consistently, and you took a break for the summer, many, many of them do. That's great. We're going to relaunch them the week of September 17th. And I'm going to challenge you, let's get back to studying together. Let's get back to praying together. And if you are like the majority of us sitting here who aren't in one, we're going to be starting a whole bunch of new ones as well with new leaders. And if you are interested in joining one of those groups, I would love to help you get connected. I know it can be kind of intimidating, especially if you're a relatively you know, new person to our church. If like, oh, I don't, wanna, I don't know how to. I don't know how to join. Listen, everybody, it's going to be a whole new group. It'll be the best time to join and a, the best time to get to know new people and grow deeper in our faith together, sharing those joys and those burdens that come with life. So I'm going to invite you. I have a sign-up on the back table back there, and if you are interested in learning more or signing up, meet me back there after church. I would love to share more about it. And then over the course of the next couple of weeks, as I see who has signed up, we're going to be launching these new groups. Sometimes it's based on where you maybe geography or different life stages or where I think just might be a good fit. And I'd be happy to talk, talk through that process with you as well. There's a great opportunity here. I know our lives are busy, our schedules are busy, but this is an opportunity to kind of get connected and plugged in and make this a priority so that we can, what do we say, what kind of church we want to be? One that looks like Jesus, that we can reflect his love and his light and his loving kindness and faithfulness. We got to know God. We got to know God's word, and we got to be prepared for when those moments hit us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are and for how you continue to time and time again show up in our moments of wilderness. God, we just stand in awe of you as we look back over these stories and as we see, even when you don't speak, you are there and you are working. Even when we don't see it all the time, God, we know in faith that you are there and you are working. 
And so, God, I give you thanks and praise this morning that you are a God who provides, that you are a God who calls, and that you are a God who invites us to embody this same sort of covenant love, to join your family of faith, so that we might be that blessing to the nations, so that we might look more like Christ, become more like Christ, be his hands and feet in a very hurting world, in a world that needs signs of light and hope and forgiveness and mercy and freedom. God, we know those are the most important things in this life, this call that you have given us. So God, give us the courage we need today to respond with how you might be prompting our hearts. You know our deepest longing and our deepest spiritual need. And you know so many of us are hungering and thirsting and longing to be better connected to you and to each other. So God, we thank you for who you are and for how you continue to be at work in our lives and our hearts and in this church. We simply pray, come Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.